You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. In May of AD 66, hostilities had erupted in Caesarea, which kicked off the first Jewish-Roman War. With some early victories, the Jewish forces had gotten the attention of Caesar Nero. The Jewish historian and subject of this episode, Josephus, gives us his take on Nero's concern in the matter. Quote, When Nero learned of the reverses in Judea, he pretended an air of disdain. These unpleasantries are due to poor generalship, he said, and not the valor of the enemy. Inwardly, however, he was very disturbed. Accordingly, he sent Vespasian, a veteran general with victories in Germany and Britain, to assume command of the armies in Syria and subdue the rebellious Jews. By the time the spring of AD 67 rolled around, Josephus was commander of the Jewish forces in and around the region of Galilee. Once Vespasian mustered his army and consolidated his forces in Ptolemais, a Phoenician city on the shores of the Mediterranean, he began his march into Galilee and did so in typical Roman grandeur. Quote, Vespasian now marched his forces out of Ptolemais in the customary Roman order. Light-armed auxiliaries and archers went in advance to repel any ambushes, followed by heavy infantry and cavalry. Surveyors and road builders were next, preceding Vespasian and his officers with their equipment. Then followed legionary cavalry, the mules bearing siege towers and other machines of war. Next came the junior officers and the standards surrounding the eagles of the legions, followed by the trumpeters and the solid column of infantry, the servant corps, and the mercenaries. Finally, a rearguard of infantry and cavalry closed in the forces. When he reached the frontiers of Galilee, Vespasian halted a while to display his forces and intimidate the enemy into reconsidering and deserting. Unquote. This intimidation tactic succeeded, and the Jewish forces, who were led by Josephus at a town called Garrus, fled. According to Josephus, he remained with only a few compatriots, but seeing that they would be unable to repel any attack from Vespasian, he fled to the city of Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Far from being an encouragement to the citizens there, Josephus' arrival was seen as an omen of impending doom, and they were right. Josephus and his forces would not have fled unless there was no hope of success. Vespasian's army began marching through Galilee, taking city after city. Josephus saw the writing on the wall and wrote to the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem explaining the dire situation and pleading with them to either negotiate a peace with Vespasian or else send him an army that could deal with him on the battlefield. Neither happened. In June of AD 67, the majority of the Jewish forces in Galilee were walled up in the city of Yodfat. 
Vespasian, eager to end the Jewish rebellion as quickly as possible, gathered his forces once again and headed toward Yodfat. The city was nestled in a mountainous region and was surrounded by deep ravines on three sides, and the only accessible route into the city was by a rough, stony trail from the north. This was the Galilean Alamo, and Vespasian was about to play his role as Santa Anna. He sent his engineers to level the road, making it accessible for his infantry and cavalry formations to easily march through. It took them a grand total of four days to create what Josephus describes as a broad highway for his troops to pass through the mountains. This turn of events caused Josephus to hurry from where he was in Tiberias and come immediately to Yodfat. His arrival encouraged the Jewish forces garrisoned there, but according to Josephus, it also encouraged Vespasian because, quote, Josephus, the man reputed to be the wisest of his enemies, had thus imprisoned himself. Now, this is neither the first nor the last time that we will find Josephus thinking very highly of himself in his own writings, but nonetheless, the commander of the Jewish forces in the area was trapped inside a city which was now surrounded by Vespasian's legions, and there was no way in or out. What happens over the next few weeks will determine the fate of this now infamous soldier, writer, historian, and depending which side you're on, traitor and deserter, Josephus. This is episode three of The End of the Age, Josephus's Problem. With Yodfat completely surrounded, no way of escape possible, and death and defeat a mere question of when and not if, there were but two possible outcomes for the people there, as with all people who are faced with such circumstances. They could, as happened earlier at Garrus, become faint of heart and lose all hope at the sight of their enemy. Or, they could become emboldened and inspired by the valor of necessity. And according to Josephus, it was the latter that occurred. The first five days of the siege consisted of Vespasian's archers and infantry making repeated assaults against the walls of the city and being beaten back each time by the Jewish defenders. With the city obviously too well protected for such a straightforward tactic, Vespasian decides to build a ramp of sorts against the most accessible portion of the wall. The next number of days will be a back and forth of military strategy between Josephus and Vespasian. The Roman army was sent out to strip the surrounding land of timber and stone to provide the resources needed to build the ramp. Once these were gathered, the men began work. In response, of course, the defenders hurled stones and other projectiles down on the attackers while they built. To counteract this, the Romans built screens of interlaced vines laid over top of wood props under which they could work with relative safety. Vespasian also called forward his artillery engines, ballista and catapults numbering 160, and aimed them at the defenders who were hurling down boulders on the men from atop the wall. Josephus's men 
responded to this new development by sending out guerrilla groups in lightning raids to tear down the shelters and set fire to the screens and props. But Vespasian responded quickly and discovered the weakness in his lines that allowed these raids to occur and prevented them. With the defenders now unable to deter the attackers from building their ramp, Josephus then ordered his masons to build their own wall higher instead. Listen to Josephus' account of these events. Quote, The embankment was now rising and almost reached the level of the battlements. To offset this, Josephus directed masons to raise the height of the wall. But they said it would be impossible to build under such a shower of projectiles. Josephus then ordered tall stakes driven in the top of the wall and stretched fresh raw hides of oxen across them. Against this shielding curtain, the stones fell back harmless, and the moisture of the hides quenched the firebrands. Thus screened, the builders raised the wall to a height of 20 cubits and crowned it with a strong parapet. The Romans, who thought they were already masters of the town, were struck with dismay at the ingenuity of Josephus and the bravery of the besieged." Unquote. Armed with a fresh batch of confidence from their new fortification, the defenders at Yodfat once again rushed out in bands on various raids to harass the Romans and burn their earthworks. The result was that Vespasian decided to pull his troops back and opted for a prolonged blockade, hoping to starve his enemies and force them into surrender. The Jewish forces were well supplied with food, but were lacking in water. And because there were no springs located within the city walls, they were forced to rely on rainwater. But it was summer, and it rarely rained in that region of Galilee during summer. But just when Vespasian was convinced that those in the city were about to run out of water, Josephus hung soaked rags from the battlements so that the walls dripped with water. Convinced now that the city was still well supplied, Vespasian reverted back to using force to conquer the city, which is exactly what the defenders had hoped. Not because this would help them achieve victory, but because they preferred to die in battle over dying of thirst and starvation. The siege continued day after day, and the Jewish casualties mounted, and their hunger and fatigue grew until, 47 days after it began, the Romans finally topped the wall, entered the city, showed no mercy to those who had caused them such difficulty, slaughtered thousands, took 1,200 women and children captive, and reduced the city to ashes. And yet, Josephus survived. He and a band of 40 other individuals hid themselves in a cave. During daylight, they remained inside hidden, and at night scouted the area in search for a way to escape, but there were none to be found. Until, on the third day, a woman who had been in the cave with Josephus was captured and gave up their location. Vespasian, apparently admiring the bravery and cunning of Josephus during the siege, wished to take Josephus alive, and Josephus was willing to surrender. 
His fellow survivors, however, were not. They threatened him at sword point that if he tried to surrender, they would kill him as a traitor. Quote, Josephus tried to persuade them that it was right to save one's life when it could be done without dishonor, and it was a great sin to throw it away unless in open warfare against the enemy. But they ran at him from all sides, and with their blades at his throat, he finally warded them off with his general's authority. If we must die, he then said, let it not be by our own, but by each other's hands. Let us draw lots, and the one who draws the first lot will be killed by him who draws the second, and so on through our entire number so that no one escapes. They readily agreed, and he drew lots with the rest. Each one, in turn, bared his throat to the next, until, should one say by fortune or by the providence of God, Josephus and one other remained alone. Josephus persuaded the man to surrender along with himself and was brought before Vespasian." Unquote. The exact details of how this mass-assisted suicide took place are unclear, but it has been popularly believed that they arranged themselves in a circle and counted by threes to determine the next person to be killed. This has even become famous as a mathematical formula known as Josephus's problem, or Roman roulette. And if this truly was the method used, you can almost imagine Josephus sitting in a corner of the cave with a circle of rocks working out the problem just in case he would need it. Some also believe that the other survivor was an accomplice, and if so, they would have had to have prearranged themselves to be standing in the 31st and 16th positions from the starting point of the circle. Regardless of the exact circumstances, Josephus lived to see another day. Vespasian's plan was to send him off as a prisoner to Emperor Nero, but Josephus had other ideas. He convinced Vespasian to keep him around by telling him about a vision that he had apparently had concerning Vespasian. Quote, You think, Vespasian, that you have a mere captive in Josephus, but I come to you as a messenger of a greater destiny. Why send me to Nero? Do you think he will continue in office? You, Vespasian, will be Caesar and emperor, you and your son here. For you are master not only of me, but of sea and land, and of the whole human race. Unquote. Because of the flattery, Vespasian and his son Titus kept Josephus around as their slave, but also as mediator and translator for the remainder of the Jewish-Roman War. In 69 AD, when Josephus's prediction came true and Vespasian did become emperor, he was granted his freedom and became a client of Vespasian, took on his family name of Flavius, and took the Roman given name Titus after Vespasian's son, with whom he would become both friend and advisor. Thus, in his later years, he became known as Titus Flavius Josephus. In his post-war life, Josephus will go back to Rome under Flavian patronage, and it's there that he will write his works. The question is, what importance does Josephus have 
for this series, looking at the fall of the city and temple in Jerusalem. Well, his writings are essentially the only eyewitness account we have of that world-changing event that have survived to present day. And not only does he write extensively concerning the events surrounding the Jewish-Roman War, but he also sheds light on a number of New Testament personalities, including Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, the two Agrippas, Felix, Festus, John the Baptist, Jesus' half-brother James, and even Jesus himself. For these reasons, he is an invaluable resource. And yet, he's far from perfect. As with all historians, he comes with his biases, though his are so flagrant, it's almost a blessing because it makes them so easy to detect. First and foremost, though seemingly oblivious to him, is his obvious lofty appreciation for himself. We saw this already a number of times in some of the quotations surrounding the events at Yodfat, but consider also this very typical Josephian passage from his autobiography. Quote, About age 14, I won universal acclaim for my love of letters, so much so that the chief priests and the city leaders regularly came to me for exact information on some particulars in the laws. Unquote. Josephus was born into a wealthy family, his father was of priestly stock, and his mother a descendant of the Hasmonean dynasty of Maccabean fame. And the result was that he was very proud of his Jewish heritage and believed the Jewish people to have had a distinguished and cultured history, regardless of what his Roman contemporaries believed to the contrary. But despite the disdain that came from the Romans, he himself held Greco-Roman culture in high esteem. What makes Josephus so unique and interesting is his perspective of having one foot in each camp. And this is also where we see his other major prejudice or bias that comes through in his work and writing. And that is his desire to see a synthesis of these two cultures. His other major work, apart from the Jewish war, is his Jewish Antiquities. And it's an attempt at retelling the history of the Jewish people from creation all the way up to the start of the Jewish-Roman War, but for the purpose of showing the Jewish religion and culture in a light that would be acceptable to a Hellenized Greco-Roman audience. And yet, for all his bias, inaccuracies, and exaggerations, he remains the single best witness to this ever-important period of time, and his accounting of the last days of the city and temple of Jerusalem before their destruction at the hands of his personal friend Titus, himself a future emperor, bear remarkable similarity to the prophecies of Jesus Christ in the New Testament Gospels concerning the exact same event. We took a significant amount of time in this episode focusing on one specific battle during the Jewish-Roman War because it gave us a snapshot into the life of Josephus, our main source for the war. In the next episode, we'll backtrack using Josephus's histories and look at the varying factors, factions, and characters that caused the war to start 
and also what roles they played leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD.